this morning, I have the privilege of continuing a series that we've been in um, through the Old Testament book of Esther. We're on this journey that has been messy and heavy and awesome and beautiful. And like I shared with you as the series started, I just never really spent uh, much meaningful time in the book. So it's been incredible to learn with you all as we take this journey um, Together, If you've missed any of this series, I would encourage you, hey, head on back to our, our website or our Facebook page or our YouTube channel, and you can catch up that way. You can catch up on all the messages dating back to 2011, um, just binge for uh, a couple of years or whatever, but I uh, would invite you to catch up. Um, but for the purpose of where we're going today, let me just give a quick review um, the book of Esther is set in the city of Susa. Susa is the capital city of the Persian Empire, uh, the global superpower in the world about 500 years before Jesus steps on the scene. And seated on the throne of Persia is a man named Xerxes. Xerxes the king has been married for about five years to a Jewish slave girl by the name of Esther. But Xerxes has no idea that Esther is either slave or a Jew because Esther's adopted father, a man by the name of Mordecai, has ordered her not to reveal her national identity. And we can only assume that is because he wants to protect her from something um, in particular. Um, well, uh, at some point in the story, we're introduced to a character named Haman. Um, Haman is referred to as an Agagite, a man who deeply loathes, he hates the Jews. Um, at some point, this man, Haman, uh, receives the king's promotion and becomes the second most powerful man in the kingdom of Persia. Essentially, the second most powerful man in the world. One of the perks of his power is that it's required that everybody who's in his presence bow before him. And so that's exactly what happens when Haman comes around, people bow. Well, everybody except Mordecai. Queen Esther's adopted father. He just wants nothing to do with bowing to Haman. When Haman slash Hateman finds out that Mordecai will not bow to him, he is enraged. So enraged that he finds it disgusting to think of only obliterating Mordecai. He will not be satisfied until every Jew on the planet is completely eliminated from the surface of the earth. So Hateman goes and uses his influence and his trust currency with King Xerxes to convince him to sign off on a mandate ordering the annihilation of all Jews, millions and millions of them. Manipulates the king and an order goes out. That every non-Jew is mandated to kill every Jew and then take their stuff. This order, this mandate starts to make its way around the world. And as you, as you can imagine, there is devastation and there is bewilderment as people are trying to make sense of this. Um, when Mordecai, Esther's adopted father, hears about this mandate, he takes to mourning in the streets. 11 months from today, 
The Jews will be slaughtered. He takes to mourning um, in the streets. Somehow, by the way, Esther is completely oblivious to anything that's happening, which is again another commentary on the conditions in which the women were kept in Xerxes' palace. Um, Completely unaware of what's happening outside the walls of their confined Harem. I mean, word has traveled thousands of miles around the world, but it hasn't moved a few hundred feet to Esther's place. When um, Mordecai finds out, he lets Esther know about what's going on via a messenger. So if you have a copy of the Bible, we're going to pick up Esther chapter 4, starting at verse number 8. Esther chapter 4, verse 8. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, verses will appear up here on the screen, and you can follow along that way. Things are about to get intense. Esther chapter 4, verse 8. He... Um, Mordecai, that is, also gave him, Esther's messenger, a copy of the text of the edict of their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct Esther, go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So Esther gets this soul-crushing update from Mordecai. The king has ordered the mass annihilation of all of our people. 11 months from today, every non-Jew is mandated to take out every Jew and to take their stuff, right? Fueled by the racist hate of this character named Haman, the king has issued this Order. And I can imagine that Esther is just sitting under the weight of this devastating terror, this devastating injustice. And as her heart is starting to bear the weight of it, she is met with an additional weight in the request that Mordecai makes of her. So, Esther, please. Go into the king's presence and ask him to call this whole thing off. Ask him to please change this annihilation law. That is a costly request. That is a weighty request to place on Esther. Esther hears this request. Go into the presence of the king and ask him to call this annihilation off. And when she hears this request, her immediate response is, nope, I'm out. This is your biblical hero. This warrior for justice, Esther. Uh, Verse 9. See for yourself. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she, Esther, instructed him, go back and tell Mordecai. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless 
The king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed, dad, since I was called to go to the king. So kindly pass. History reveals uh, that behind uh, King Xerxes would stand a soldier. And this soldier would wield an axe. He would hold an axe in his hand. And this soldier had one job and he really liked his job. And that job was if somebody came into the presence of the king uninvited, unsummoned, that axe would swing, boy. And heads would roll. Maybe I should tone it down for the kids. But that was this dude's job. Now, by the way, we read that and it again can be tempting for us to superimpose our superior cultural ways and view that as that is barbaric. No, it's not. You step into the presence of the king unannounced, he should view that as an assassination attempt. And if you don't think this makes sense, then go on a group tour to the White House. And at some point, just break from the group and run for the Oval Office. See what happens. Check it out, right? In either case, um, Esther tells Mordecai, what's happening to our people is horrible. What's happening to our people is wrong. This should never happen. What's happening to our people is racist. It's, it's unjust. What's happening to our people should stop. But you're asking me to risk my life though. I mean, you know I would help, but... Mm-mm. So... Which raises a question. And I think it raises a question that we as a church must answer. And I think it raises a question which each of us as individuals must answer. And it's a question about price. It's a question about price. All of us have to answer this question. And here's the question. What price are you willing to pay for justice? What price are you willing to pay for justice? I mean, I know you think it's horrible that someone in a position of power should hurt somebody who's in a lesser position of power. I know that. I know you think it's wrong for anyone to be targeted or in any way mistreated because of the color of their skin, because of their race, because of their ethnicity. I know that. Not arguing with that. At all. I know you think it's wrong for any child to be abused or abandoned or alone. No question about that whatsoever. You think it's wrong for anyone under any circumstances to ever be sexually assaulted. And I know you also believe that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are the hands and feet of Jesus himself. You're an extension of his justice league called to be a difference in the world. I know that. And I just want to thank you, by the way, for thinking the right things. And I want to thank you for raging over all the wrong things. But the question remains, what 
price are you willing to pay to change it? How much are you willing to give and give up to help someone who's being targeted or taken advantage of? How much are you willing to risk to stop the mistreatment or to stop the abuse that you now know about? It's different when Esther didn't know. How uncomfortable are you willing to get to confront racism or sexism or bullying or misogyny, whatever it might be? How much are you willing to risk to make it right? I'm just asking, what price are you willing to pay for justice? See, because if we don't answer that question, we will perpetually be talking about injustice and perpetually be doing nothing to address it. And then when we stand before Jesus, we might be surprised that he's not impressed with what we knew or thought or said or believed. Because you may not know this, but the final exam is not going to be a true or false Exam. It's not going to be an agree or disagree exam. It's going to be a did or didn't exam. For I was hungry, what did you do? I was naked and vulnerable, what did you do? What price were you willing to pay to do something about it? For Esther... She decides, man, fighting the injustice in front of me is just not worth risking my life. Dad, the king is not asked to see me in a month. If I bust up into his presence and he's not glad to see me, you've seen the dude who stands behind him. That axe will swing. I get it, lots of Jews are going to die. I get it, and I think it's wrong, and I would help, but not for that. That price is too high for me to pay. I'm just curious to know what your price is. I mean, I would call out the bullying that I'm aware of. I know it's happening, but then I wouldn't be invited to hang out. I think it's wrong, but I'm not willing to pay that price. I mean, I see the way she mistreats her kids. I see it. But honey, you know that if we say something about it, then we're going to become those grandparents and we are going to lose our access. And I'm telling you, snuggle time for Nana, that's not an option. I'm not giving that up. So let's just... I know the kids don't have a safe place. I know that. But I mean, I'm just saying like I'm not willing to delay my retirement or my empty nest years. Plus, it's not my calling. That calling is for the special people in the church. I would, I mean, I would say something when I hear the boss making those targeted comments at her because she is a woman but if i say that is where promotion opportunities go to die so i'm not willing to pay that price thank you very much 
I would fight for that. I mean, I would. I think it's wrong. And I would fight for it. But if I did that, do you know what could happen to my right? My rights? And if this right is threatened, then that right could be threatened. And then that right could be threatened. And before long, it would be absolute chaos. And there would be dancing. Like So no, I'm out. Not worth that. And justice is definitely not worth Giving up my weekends. What's the price you're willing to pay? So Esther weighs this situation and she decides not worth that. I mean, I know we like to rush to the end of the story if we know it and be like, Esther, but no, Esther is telling Mordecai, um, this is my life we're talking about. Tell him, he'll understand. Yeah, except Mordecai is not understanding as the church often is. He's not willing to say, well, yeah, I guess if we're talking about your rights and your retirement, then I, yeah, you're, that's, you're right. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, I get it. I mean, because if you did that, you might be called woke. How can anyone live under such a label? So don't do that. I get it. We get it. Jesus will understand. No, he won't. Spoiler alert. No, he won't. I would have Jesus, but you know what they would have said. And neither did Mordecai. Verse number 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you're in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape. Or daddy and daughter are fighting. Don't make any mistake about it. Verse 14. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. The most famous words in the book of Esther. For such a time as this. Man, God might have you strategically in this position for such a time. A time as this. But did you know that those words were spoken in the context of a rebuke? Uh, Let me take it a step further. Did you know that those words were spoken in the context of a threat? Man, we'll come back to that here in a second. But Mordecai just calls out Esther's self-centeredness. Just like I believe the Holy Spirit does with us. Oh, Esther, I see. So your comfort and your safety and your security, mm, that's at the center of the story. And everything else revolves around it. I see. So as long as you're fine, it's fine. Woo! That's heavy. I mean, they're being bullied. 
I'm not being bullied. And since my comfort and my security is at the center of the story, I mean, why should I disrupt my comfy situation here in the palace to mess with something that's not directly affecting me? And Mordecai's, oh, you think because you're in the palace. I mean, they're experiencing racism. I'm not experiencing racism, so... Since my comfort is a priority, why should I inconvenience myself by paying a price for something that doesn't directly affect me? Because they're being mistreated as women, or they're being underpaid for doing the same thing. I mean, that's... I mean, that doesn't directly affect me, so why should I? Okay, so you've made your comfort and your security the center of... The story. Why should I disrupt my situation for their suffering? I mean, if it's not my problem, then it's not my problem. Mordecai says, hey, listen, stop acting like your safety and security is the only thing that matters. And then he threatens his daughter. I'm sorry to ruin the story with the humanity of these people, but whichever way you read this, I read at least two threats. The first threat I read is a spiritual threat. Mordecai tells Esther, listen, you know enough to know that the Jews are God's chosen people. And any time they've been targeted for annihilation, he has delivered them. And I believe he will deliver them again with you or without you. But woe to you and your entire family line if you choose the wrong side of justice. Woe to you if you choose your safety as a priority over God's purposes in this moment right now. Wow. And I think there's a personal threat. You're not as safe from God in that palace as you think. And frankly, you're not as safe from me. I will expose you. Matter of fact, he's kind of already started to expose it because up until this point, no one had any clue in the palace or in the harem that Esther was a Jew until Mordecai said it to her messengers. He didn't write it in code. He didn't pig Latin the situation. He said it out loud. Just be, you as a Jew are not going to escape over there in the palace. Esther gets this. I'm sure she's thinking, how long until these whispers reach the ear, ears of the king? Ooh, I'd be so curious to know how you feel about this little family situation. Mordecai's shady move. I'd be so curious to know, by the way, how you feel about your image of Esther in, in this, like, scared and selfish response all i know is i love the bible i love the bible and the way it is more than happy to paint and portray the messiness of the people in its pages it doesn't feel any pressure to have to deify them or make them perfect and in this situation we have scared people saying scared things and doing scared stuff and it's just in the bible and i want to pretty it up and you know make it sound like no but it's there Although, can we please acknowledge for a hot minute here, like uh, the truth bomb that Mordecai drops as it applies to us. 
Because man, I read that and it struck me. Like God is so passionate about justice. He is father to the fatherless. He is the defender of the weak. He is the avenger of the abused. He is the breaker of chains. God is passionate about justice and he is going to put injustices in our view and he's going to invite us to play our part and to partner with him in doing something to see those things addressed. And if we don't, he is going to get it done Anyway, I believe as we turn a blind eye to the brokennesses in front of us, God is going to raise someone else up to address the issue. But woe to us if we choose the wrong side of justice. God's going to get it done. I don't know that we remember this often enough. But man, maybe God has placed us in our unique positions. Maybe God has given us the privileges that we have and the resources that we have. So that he can use us for such a time as this to address the injustices that he places in front of us. And while we're in these positions and while we have these opportunities, he continues to invite us to play Apart, And the only question is, are you willing to pay the price to partner with God and do something about it? Because again, I can make it about my comfort as I often do and continue to turn a blind eye when things come before me. And yet the reality is God is like, are you kidding? I will get this done. But how tragic If he did it without us, if he addressed racism without us, if he emptied the foster care system without us, if he fought for the unborn without us, if he fought to support the birth mom without us. Mordecai just calls Esther out. And I love this theme in the story. Esther's humility. We saw it last week. She heard Mordecai was mourning. And so she assumed what was wrong. She tried to fix it. Mordecai said, nope, no thank you. And so she sent a follow-up message. She said, my bad. Tell me what's going on. And I see this again. Mordecai, man, he rebukes Esther. Calls her to something. Esther hears him, and it's almost as though her response is, well, if you put it that way. Verse number 15. Then Esther, she sent this reply to Mordecai. "Uh, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days. Night or day, I and my attendants will fast as you do. When the time is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And then watch the new price she's willing to pay. And if I perish, I perish. 
I see it. I'm in. I'm in. You're right. You're right. I'm ready to play my part. But I'm going to majorly need God to play his part. We don't know again how much Esther's faith influenced or didn't influence the decisions that she made um, or didn't make. But man, we do know that she was aware enough to ask the Jews in the city, pray and fast for me for three days. This is going to take something I do not have. If this is going to happen, it's going to take a miracle. Please pray. Please fast. Then I'm going to go and talk to the king. And if I die on the side of justice, and if I die partnering with God and playing my part in seeing millions and millions of lives preserved, then I die. That will be worth it to me. Verse 17. So Mordecai went away. And he carried out all of Esther's instructions. Let's talk about purpose for a quick second. Just for a quick second. This to me is such a beautiful verse. The moment Esther says yes. The moment Esther steps into this space. Playing whatever part. And paying whatever price God calls her to, so to speak, for the sake of justice. Man, the moment she says yes, purpose. Purpose comes rushing to the surface. I love this part of the story. Where you see stuff called out in Esther that I don't know that she knew was in her. You see this shift in Esther. She was living behind walls. Who knows what she believed was true about herself. But purpose comes rushing to the surface. Wow. Ah, For the first time in the book, Mordecai is going to start taking instructions from Esther. She didn't even know she was a leader like that. And so will Haman and so will Xerxes. Something rises up in her. And I'm just telling you, you have no idea the kingdom giant you are. Until you step away from the shores of safety. Until you put the purposes of God in the center of the story. And start saying yes to partnering with him. You have no idea the stuff that he longs to call up in you. There's been a famine of meaning. And there's been a famine of significance in your story. And you've been chasing it in a variety of different ways. While you continue to centralize making your life more comfortable and secure. I'm telling you that's not where it's at. Man, it is found in partnering with God in some of the most terrifying, some of the most uncomfortable spaces and places. What injustice are you aware of that maybe you've done nothing to address yet? Again, it wasn't about what Esther didn't know. It was about what she became painfully Aware of what injustice have you maybe been defending 
right? Yeah, but what about that injustice, right? That's your reason, right? So I'm not dealing with that because, and so you just keep shoving it aside. And the Lord keeps graciously bringing it back into your view. Maybe God is waiting to trade you safe for significant. Well, three days go by. And uh, man, the Jews in the city pray and fast and pray and fast until finally it is do or die time for Esther. We're actually laid out to switch chapters in church. So Esther chapter 5 verse 1. Um, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king, he was sitting on his throne in the hall facing the entrance. Man, I'm sure Esther has been reminded several times, uh, you are not on the appointment books. You've not been invited. Esther, 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 don't, Esther. As she makes her way into the presence of the king with no idea if she'll live or die. And it's in those scary moments that we start to see the unnamed invisible God in this book going before her. Verse number two, when he, King Xerxes, saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her. And he held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. And the dude with the axe was like, he wanted some work. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Verse 3. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? By the way, in this shift, the moment Esther steps into this moment, in this moment, this, this scene... That's when the author starts to refer to her more often by her royal designation, Queen Esther. When she identifies with her people, when she stands for justice, she receives this royal treatment almost from the author. What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. What? I'm just telling you, you have no idea the mountains God will move. You have no idea the miracles God will perform. When you start to step into these scary places and say yes to partnering with him in standing with the hurting and standing with the broken and standing against injustice, you have no idea the things God is willing to do. That you've been saying, well, I mean, we would address that, but that's like a national crisis. What can we do? You can do your part and watch God do his. He does stuff here that you're like, there is no way. This would have been the very reason Esther would have spent 80 years making excuses. It could never happen. Well, step into the court. Let's see. Take the step of faith and see if I won't meet you. God is moving mountains. This is absolutely unbelievable. Um. We go from fearing, and this is me. I go from like, is Esther going to live? Is Esther going to live? And then the next thing I'm like, is Esther going to bail? Is Esther going to bail out? And the reason I'm worried about that is because the devil never stops, y'all. 
She goes into the presence of the king. And what does he do? He, he holds out a blank check in front of her. You can have whatever you want up to half the kingdom. I'm like, no, Esther, don't bail. Oh, Esther, don't do it. Because if Esther's anything like me, then I'm like, I could become a billionaire right now. Tell Mordecai I tried. And man, I am off in my Bentley. This is amazing to me. I'm like, Esther, don't do it. Man, I believe this is what happens in so many cases with us. The Lord blesses us with resources in order to empower the mission. And we're like, oh, we could be billionaires. We could be more comfortable. You know, if we can get somebody in office who advocate for what matters the most to us, we could be more comfortable. We could run things no matter what the impact might be on the most vulnerable population in our world. He loves to dangle comfort and security in front of us. I'm like, Esther, girl, you could have it all right now. Esther answers a tempting request. Verse number four, if it pleases the king, replied Esther, then please call off this mass mandate for annihilation is what out of hope Esther would say. But no, she takes a scenic route. Let the king, together with Hateman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. <laughs> Verse 5 is funny to me. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do <laughs> what Esther asks. That's funny to me. Because this is Persia. And we wrote a law that said the man is in charge and his word goes in every house. So quick, Haman, let's do what my wife said. <laughs> oh, this story gets so good, boy. So anyway, <laughs> the king and Hateman went to the banquet Esther had prepared, which must speak to some faith she had. She prepared a banquet, not knowing whether she would live or die. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even after half the kingdom, it will be granted. Ooh, Esther, orphan Jewish girl in Persia has the men eating out of her hands. When you say yes, God says bigger yeses. This is crazy to me. She's going to start summoning them now. You are summoned to come to my place. This has never happened in history. Xerxes has never been to the harem before. And yet here the most powerful guys. This is just crazy. Um, okay, Esther, what do you want? And Esther's like, well, I want to push my luck. Verse number seven. Esther replied... My petition and my request is this, if the king regards me with favor and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and hateman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. I'm like, wait, what? 
And also, why are you testing this man's patience right now? I would love for some of you more brilliant people than I to give me some suggestions as why Esther did this. I don't know. I wonder if maybe she's trying to get a sense of just how pleased the king is with her. I mean, you say you're pleased, but just how pleased, right? Because if I ask you to come to a second banquet and you're not willing to do that, then I'm not making my big request because I know for sure you would not be willing to do that. I don't know. I don't know if maybe Esther is trying to feel out like, do you like him or do you like me? Do you like him, Hateman, or do you like me more, Esther? I wonder if she's trying to get a feel like for how in is this guy with you? Um, because man, if you guys are super, super close, then you're not going to be willing to break the bro code. For my request. Because he's the one who drove it. But I can't really get a feel on it. In one meal. So do you guys mind coming back tomorrow? I want to get a sense of what's going on. I don't know why Esther does this. I just wish she wouldn't. Um, and then the story ends on a dramatic note. I mean at least this chapter does. Uh, Haman went out. That day happy and in high spirits. Double meaning. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. And again, I'm like, Mordecai, bro, bro. You would think that, hey, this is the guy who has helped to issue the annihilation of all of your people. I would think that Mordecai would maybe be like, my bad, dude. Nope, he refuses to bow. Um, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And he said, and that's not all. Haman added, I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king uh, to the banquet that she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. I am living my best life, verse number 13. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the gate. Can we talk about poison? Please hear me as we wrap If there is someone you hate or are unwilling to forgive, that bitterness will consume you. There is an old saying that I'm going to butcher for the sake of this conversation. But holding on to bitterness or racism or sexism or partyism. Bitterness, it's like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. 
This is so striking to me. And while the Lord is pouring blessing upon blessing on your life and you are surrounded with beautiful things, you can't even enjoy them because, oh my gosh, you saw someone wearing a mask and that's triggered you. Or your latest news headline, it just made you mad. Or you saw another hashtag or you saw another thing flying or it was Father's Day and that's triggered something in you. And I'm telling you, before long, you are not able to enjoy life It's consuming you. That's what's happening to Haman. I wonder what your next step might be in maybe releasing somebody that you've held in the chains of unforgiveness or bitterness. Let me rephrase. I wonder what your next step might be in releasing yourself from the chains with which you've held somebody else in bitterness and unforgiveness. So Haman is so blinded by hate, man. That he cannot enjoy much of anything. Verse number 14. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him. Have a pole set up. Reaching to a height of 50 cubits. And ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman. And he had the pole set up. Again, because I'm the man in the house. What do you say, Zeresh? Which, man, is such a picture of the COVID catastrophe, if you ask me. Where so many of us surrounded ourselves with so many people who agreed with us and stoked our frustrations and our bitternesses. I mean, look around you, man. And just if you're at beef with anybody, like, man, you're probably going to realize, like, yeah, during that window of time, it either deepened or it started. It was such a a rough time for this. And now it's my news outlet. I'm surrounded myself with voices of people who said what I wanted to hear and encouraged me to drink poison. You're mad. Me too. And now we're just mad. And we find ourselves unable to get out of it. If you kill Mordecai, you feel better, they tell him. So, um, Hateman sets up a five and a half story pole for Mordecai to get skewered on the next day. And that's how the chapter closes. So, come back next week. Um, really good. But the, the questions, I, I, I wonder if we would be willing to honestly and legitimately ponder. Let's please not do that thing. We went to church and we heard something and then we walked away. Um, as if hearing is ultimately what Jesus is interested in. No, we want to be hearers of the word and doers of the word. Um, we want to ask the question, what does revelation require of me? And so I wonder... If there's an injustice God has made you aware of, um, you know it's happening and people are being hurt in some way or another or they're suffering or struggling in some way or another and you've become aware of it and man, it breaks your heart. It, It bothers you. And even as I say this, it either comes to mind and maybe nothing comes to mind, but on Tuesday you will see it and you will be like, oh, Yeah, that's the thing. The question is, what price are you willing to pay to partner with God in seeing that thing 
changed. And I pray that there's a rebellion in us. Really, the question is not ultimately what price am I willing to pay? The question is, what is worth me saying no to Jesus? Which comfort is worth me saying like, I would have, but you know how I like my weekends. I wonder what price is maybe standing in the way of you doing something about it. And I wonder for you if, if life has become about your priorities and your purposes. Um, and there are things in you that the Lord wants to stir. There is leadership in you. There are gifts in you. There are things he wants to call out of you that for years you've lived and let lie dormant while he wants to use you. But that's not going to happen on the shores of safety. I wonder what purpose he may want to call out of you. I, I, I hope that you be at least curious and ask more questions of him. Like what is it that you may want to do in me? Um, and maybe you're the person who says I'm in. Man, I'm in. I want to make a difference. Then I wonder what miraculous provision you just need to start asking for. And maybe ask a number of us to like, hey, pray with me for three days or whatever. I need God to do something seemingly impossible to unravel that situation in my family. To unravel this situation in the community. To restore this situation. To rebuild something. I don't know what you need, but God loves to move mountains when we partner with him in this space. And then I wonder if there's anyone you need to just take steps towards releasing from bitterness, from unforgiveness. Man, what a striking and a stirring story. And again, this is not striking. This is not stirring because we meet some superhero people who have it together and they're perfect. No, they are messy and broken people. This story is stirring because it ultimately, as does all scripture, points to the only person who is perfect in every way, Jesus Christ himself, who, by the way, did not consider his spot in the palace, the comfort, the equality with God as something to be clung to. But he left heaven and came into an uncomfortable situation and became willing to pay the ultimate price of his life on the cross. He drank your poison. So that we would be set free to live fully and freely. And he did all of that so that we would not experience the mass annihilation that we deserved because of our sin. And now he's saying, y'all, come on, be like me when you step into this world. And I will give you the power, I will give you the grace to do what I did on your behalf. Jesus, what price are you willing to pay? Jesus, are you playing it safe? Or are you living the Father's purpose? Such a powerful reminder of who Jesus is and what he calls us to be. So Father, I pray that you'd make us like your son, Jesus. That we would be his hands and feet when we show up in this world. Lord, I pray that even now you would break chains of fear in us. The things that have held us back from stepping into the spaces that you're calling us to step into. Um, I pray for all of us that you would place a matter that matters to you in front of us and that we would not be able to avoid it. And then I pray you'd give us the courage to say, God, we're willing, we're in. We know we can't do it, so we're going to play our part and ask you to play yours. Stir your church, Lord. To live a life that will pass the final with flying colors. We saw the injustice and Jesus, we addressed it. 
Well done, good and faithful servants. Help us to that end. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.